Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Many years after the end of the Civil War, some Northern veterans wrote histories of their regiments for the benefit of their old comrades and friends and families, giving us insight into how veterans wanted to remember their war. In the last decade, an exciting trend has emerged in Civil War historiography, the new regimental history, applying all the tools of 21st century scholarship to the stories of these military communities. The newest example comes to us from Professor Brian Matthew Jordan. It tells the story of the 107th Ohio in A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. We'll talk with Professor Jordan tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight in March, March 17th of 2021, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina not too far away from East Carolina University, but not speaking for ECU, not related to ECU, working there, but only remotely these days, and not speaking for anyone other than myself, as the same will apply to our guest, each expressing only our own opinions, with mine, of course, being correct at all times. Well, it is March 17th. It's St. Patrick's Day of 2021. Happy St. Patrick's Day to those of you who celebrated. I have been celebrating my Irish heritage all day. Well, actually, I guess I have not actually done anything of the sort. I, I'm married to a, uh, a, a Miss Murphy, so I guess that's sort of Irish, but she's not into it either, so, so we just had a regular day here. Here on campus, the big news is that 
East Carolina University has a new chancellor. Uh, he was officially starting his term as of Monday. The good news is he is 37 years old, brings the energy of youth to the job. He is former chief of staff to a previous chancellor here, so he knows the campus. The bad news is that he is 37 years old. I have t-shirts older than that. Uh, he also has no academic experience. He was not a provost anywhere or a dean or a chair or even a professor. So we'll, we'll just have to see. We'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. In more upbeat news on campus, the baseball pirates are uh, tearing up the season so far. They've moved to the top 10 nationally as we speak. They're playing UNCW. It was a year ago. Uh, March 11th was the date last year when they were playing the same team on a Wednesday night or a midweek night. And uh, during the game, the announcement came in, weekend series against Dartmouth is canceled. They're not going to travel down to Greenville because of some fear about this new new disease going around. And by the end of the night, the NBA had closed down its season, and it was suddenly apparent to us all something serious was underway. Uh, we've been at it a year. I hope everyone has been wearing their masks, and, and we can now see the light at the end of the tunnel. I've got had my first shot. Looking forward to the second one. Hope we can all meet on battlefields this summer, uh, travel with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, which I hope to be leading in May, and uh, see you out there. In other local news, uh, Civil War-related as well, I've been serving on a committee uh, that involves decisions about changing the names of buildings on campus that were named for historical figures whose views are no longer views that the university espouses. And uh, these meetings are, by law, open meetings, so we hold them online, but anyone can get the number and dial in and listen. And so I had the interesting experience opening the newspaper last Friday, and I don't normally read our local newspaper, but I'd gotten a promotional copy and I opened it. And we have a section called Bless Your Heart, that delightful Southernism, that is the equivalent of, of F.U., but in a very polite way uh, that you say to someone. So people publish these anonymous blurbs, and they, the, the newspaper runs them, which means the bless your heart section functions as sort of the open running sore of all the ill will in the community. I'm not quite sure what the paper thinks they're accomplishing with it. But I had the, the experience, which I'd never had before, of being called out by name in one of these anonymous bits uh, for something I had said during the meeting about the, um, about the changing of names. And the, the anonymous writer was certain that I must not be a Christian based on my my commentary, and uh, impossible to respond to anonymous journalism like that, but uh, but there you go. Not anonymous is www.impedimentsofwar.org. That's the Civil War Talk Radio auxiliary website. Mark Gaffney is the person who runs it. That's his name. Uh, you can contact him or me at uh, on Facebook through the Compendium Nator. I'm probably saying it wrong. Go to uh, Impediments of War on Facebook and 
the person who runs it, that's Mark, uh, and I'm there too. Or go to the website, and you can see what he's put up there, and he'll tell you who's going to be on the show next. For example, next week, uh, March 24th, 2021, nobody. It's going to be spring break. We don't have a spring break this year, so I'm taking an official one. So get your drinks with umbrellas in them, your colorful shirts, your um, bathing costumes, or whatever you you wear for spring break. Lounge about the place next Wednesday night, uh, and I'll be doing the same here. We'll have a spring break party. And come back on March 31, Lawrence Donald Desotel, or DeSotel, I'll have to ask him how to say the name correctly, uh, written a, uh, a different sort of book. It's called The Captured, the Sick, and the Dead, Confederate Prisoners at Camp Randall. It's in Wisconsin. Very interesting book, and uh, we'll talk about that. On the 7th of April, uh, Bill Marvel returns to the show, his new book about Fitzjohn Porter, which is a fascinating topic, um, is, is coming up. And then we've got uh, uh, John Madison on the 14th uh, coming up, talking about the the Battle of Fredericksburg. On the 21st of April, Lauren Thompson, Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War, uh, a topic that has not been explored enough. Uh, James Oakes returns to the show, talking about Lincoln and the anti-slavery constitution. And on May 5th, Colonel Jeffrey McCausland and Colonel Thomas Vossler, uh, both retired, have a book titled Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. And we'll wrap up March, May, April, what month are we in? May 12th, Barbara Tomlin, Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. Lots of interesting books coming up. Uh, Join us for that. Donate to the show while you're at the website, and I will spend the money on public relations firms or a new, uh, looking around the room, a new joystick for the computer, uh, anything I want, basically, because it's not a charity. It's just a donation. don't, Don't declare it on your taxes. Well, tonight we have a third-time guest. Always good to have someone returning to the show who's been here before uh, and whose work repeatedly merits uh, a conversation. Uh, The book is called A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. Not until I started reading it did I recognize it to be a regimental history, which I really like. And uh, we'll find out about it from the author, Brian Matthew Jordan. Brian. Uh, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure to be with you. Well, wel- welcome back. It's good to have you back. I didn't realize, uh, I started going through the records. I, I know we'd talked here before, and then I remember your your wonderful book about veterans, the Marching Home book. Uh, and I'd forgotten you did that earlier book on Battle of South Mountain, and we talked about that as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. congratulations on uh, three in a row, a hat trick. That's uh, a good thing to have. Um, <laughs> well, thank so, you so much. And you're currently teaching in Houston, is that correct? I'm at uh, Sam Houston State University, which is about an hour north of, of Houston in Huntsville, Texas, deep in the heart of East Texas. And are, are you managing all right? Houston or Texas in general has had some, some tough days recently. We we did have uh, quite a difficult uh, winter episode here a few weeks ago, but uh, happily um, 
most of us have have recovered, but it was it was quite an event. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you've recovered. Hope all is well there. Uh, so this book, uh, the 107th Ohio, the first thing that struck me about it that, and I, I shared this about your previous book, it's a very handsome book. It is. It's got a great cover with a great texture, um, beautifully printed. It's it's not a large print book, but it's some books are the, the type is crammed together. Others are just a pleasure to read, and this is in the latter category. And I guess my question is, how do you do this? Because I said the same thing about your previous book, and I noticed this is printed by W.W. W. Norton uh, or one of their subsidiaries. So it's not an academic press. It, it's what made you go with a non-academic press for this book? So LiveWrite, uh, which, as you point out, is a division of W.W. W. Norton. Uh, they published my previous book, uh, Marching Home, and uh, I was very, very satisfied with uh, the job that they had done with, with that book. And their editorial team, I think, is the best in the business. And as you point out, they, they do produce a handsome book. And so this was, in, in some ways, a prequel, uh, if you will, to Marching Home and that uh, we're moving back into the war years and getting down onto the ground to think about um, the, the human texture of, of the war, just as marching home and looked at the, the human texture of, of the post-war, uh, here we're moving backwards in time. So it was a book they were excited to do, and um, given the, the quality of, of the finished product last time, I was uh, eager, to, um, eager to allow them to do this. It, it's indistinguishable in appearance from the university press book in terms of the, the citations and the apparatus, uh, the, the reference apparatus, everything is there. Is it peer-reviewed mm-hmm. the way a university press book would be? It's, uh, it is not uh, peer-reviewed in the, in the traditional sense, um, mm-hmm. although, of course, um, so many of our, our colleagues and mutual friends in Civil War history have uh, read the, the chapters and, and poured over um, the material in here. So um, in that way, it was vetted, but not in the, the traditional way that you would get at a, a UNC or LSU press. I, I did the same thing with uh, my book on Lincoln's, the, the question answer book, uh, Did Lincoln Own Slaves, mm-hmm. uh, where I sent the manuscript out to colleagues and so on. So I was requested my own peer review, but the, the publisher didn't do it. And I guess my question for you, one more inside baseball question is, did it, does this have an impact on your your tenure or promotion uh, uh, portfolio, or do you have any concern about that? Happily, it does not. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to be a member of a department that um, is kind of progressively minded about that. Although I, I do publish in you know kind of the traditional scholarly venues as well to mm-hmm. um, acknowledge the fact that I. Um, do have a penchant for publishing with these commercial trade presses, but um, certainly that may be an issue at some departments, but, but happily at SHSU it's not. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It, it, it shouldn't be, but but it is, and it's it, it keeps us Civil War writers, historians, from reaching as, as broad a public as, as ought to be reached, and it, it, it defaults the field to people who do publish with bigger presses who maybe aren't mm-hmm. as scrupulous in their scholarship, and that, that can be frustrating. So in your first, your, your previous book on veterans, as you said a moment ago, you looked at 
their their views after the war. In that book, you challenged uh, what was sort of an emerging consensus on reconciliation, that veterans were all mm-hmm. about shaking hands across the bloody chasm, and you argued that was not the case. In this book, it seems like you're also challenging uh, some preconceptions about northern soldiers. Did that Was that part of mm-hmm. your, your purpose going forward? It certainly was. I mean, I had a, a number of objects in, in taking on this project. I mean, one was really to play around with this vehicle of the regimental history, which I think can be a really, really powerful tool uh, to convey an argument, um, to peer out at some of these broader issues in the war from the perspective of uh, a single unit, I think helps us to see some things in new and oblique ways, um, gives us a, a fine-grained account that, that also doesn't lose sight of the larger um, questions in, in civil war historiography. So I'm fascinated by this genre. Certainly you um, mentioned that there's been a wave of these sorts of studies in, in recent years. I'm thinking of Leslie Gordon's work, Susanna Ural's, um book on Hood's Texas Brigade and and there have been um, quite a number of other folks who have, have done this really well. And I, I, I wish more people would do it, frankly. The, and we're starting now to see a, a resurgence uh, in brigading and core histories as well. So I think we get a new perspective on the war just from, from getting down onto the ground and getting into one of the, the topography of human experience. Uh, but I also wanted to challenge, um, just as I did in the, in the book on veterans, uh, some of the, the, the sweeping generalizations that we make about Civil War soldiers. Jason Phillips, a few years ago, wrote a really compelling historiographical essay in which he argued that we kind of shoehorn Civil War soldiers into one of four stereotypes, right? They're either race warriors or citizen soldiers or heroes or victims. And I think there's a lot of truth in, in that characterization of the literature. Certainly, the last uh, decade or so, we've seen a, a, a much more uh, capacious and rich and sprawling literature on the experiences of common soldiers, but we still have that tendency in the argument-driven monograph to, to shoehorn. And so that's another reason to turn to the, the unit history, to the regimental history, to kind of avoid that thesis-driven monograph and address some of these things from the perspective of the unit and to get at the reality that most Civil War soldiers, right, within the space of a, a single unit, they could whipsaw between hope and heartbreak, between duty and dereliction, between cynicism and conviction. Um, this unit, of course, you know, they, they feel the ache of defeat at Chancellorsville. They're swept up in Stonewall Jackson's flank attack. Uh, they're, they're badly beaten, of course, at Blocker's Knoll the first day at Gettysburg. Uh, and yet they also have a Medal of Honor winner, right, from this uh, little-known raid right at the end of the war um, in South Carolina, right? So they, they kind of track between the war's extremes. And I think, you know, at, at once that makes this unit exceptional, but it also makes them fairly mundane, right? They weather the numbing human ordeal of the war um, in some ordinary ways, even as um, some pretty remarkable things set them apart. We, we can, of course, talk about that as, as the hour goes on. Well, well, exactly. They are, they are both representative and unique, as so many regiments are. We will take a short break right now. We'll come back, talk more about the 107th Ohio, which is the subject of the book, A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. We're talking with author Brian Matthew Jordan. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. Uh, Brian, you were talking about the, the stereotypes of the common soldier that have been part of the literature. I just finished uh, putting last revisions on a historiographical essay on uh, the literature of the common soldier that, that will probably appear later this year. Uh, unfortunately, too late to mention your book, which came in after I'd finished it. Uh, but it, you're absolutely right that this ties into a, a very uh, rich tradition, but one that does get get siloed to get these different uh, individual kind of descriptions. The people you talk about fit into all these different categories, and it starts with where they're from. Uh, I mean, they're all mm-hmm. from from Ohio, of course, but. Uh, this is an ethnic regiment, but not entirely so. And even among the the the, the German immigrants or second generation Germans, they're uh, they're very different people. That's right. That's right. The 107th Ohio was also known as the uh, the fifth German regiment from Ohio. Ohio would field six ethnically German regiments. Um, and in what that designation means, Jerry, of course, um, immigrants would account for a majority of the troops on the muster roll uh, in, an, in an ethnically German regiment. So of the 3,500 or so Union regiments uh, that fight between 1861 and 1865, there are only about 30 uh, that, that can really truly be called ethnically uh, ethnic regiments. Um, a lot of the German immigrants, of course, more than 200,000 uh, ethnic Germans will fight in Lincoln's armies during the war. Um, many of them fight in native-born units, or they're put into mixed outfits or uh, maybe outfits that derive um, 
something like a third or a quarter of their strength from um, immigrant soldiers. 107th Ohio, therefore, is, is pretty unique. 69% uh, of its soldiers uh, were of were ethnic Germans or of German ancestry. So um, already that's, that makes this a, a pretty unique experience in that they come uh, from a region that, of course, is, is divided over questions of, of nativism, but also divided, quite frankly, over the, the meaning of, of the war and emancipation. That really came through repeatedly in this book, how divided the, the regiment itself was. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got, you've got a political party that seems to support the rebellion and slavery uh, in the form of the Democrats, but you've got another political party that draws on the, the Americans or the know-nothing party that's anti-German. Mm-hmm. So, so where, do the, where are these guys going to go? Uh, can you talk about their their political allegiances? That's right. Um, you know, within this unit, and this kind of getting back to the earlier comment about the way that we like to, to generalize, we we've, we've stereotyped even the, the ethnic Germans who participated in the, the Union Army, and, and thinking that they're all forty eighters, and, and certainly there are some forty eighters in the one hundred and seventh Ohio. Most notably, the the regimental surgeon Charles Hartman uh, was one of the most radical of uh, the old 48ers. Uh, but there are also uh, quite a few old, um, more conservative German uh, Democrats uh, who had come over in the 1850s, uh, who had planted some roots in northeastern Ohio and maintained a, a much more uh, conservative view on the war and maintained a, a certain skepticism about uh, Republican dalliances with um, the know-nothing movement. So you see that internal division not only within the unit between native-born soldiers and immigrant soldiers, but also within that immigrant population itself. There are these these divisions, and those divisions, um, of course, come out in, in full color. Um, in the 1863 gubernatorial race in Ohio, uh, all eyes were on that race owing to the presence of, of the Landingham uh, on the Democratic ticket. And then, of course, the next year, 1864, during the presidential race, 107th Ohio is actually the only unit um, to, uh, only Ohio unit to deliver a majority of its votes for George McClellan. Um, and this despite uh, the fact that there are a lot of these uh, 48ers, ardent Republican German immigrants um, shouldering muskets in, in the unit. So um, it's, a, it's a much more politically complicated uh, story. And I think that, um, you know, is another takeaway. Again, when we get down on the unit level, we can we can see things uh, more clearly than we can when we're at a thousand feet. Yeah. It, it, one of the problems with biography is that you're looking at one person and, and no matter what conclusions you draw, it's just one person. <clears throat> and when you go to the unit level, now you've got, uh, you know, theoretically a thousand in a regiment, but but more likely, mm-hmm. you know, four or five, six hundred. Uh, so you you can draw broader conclusions, but you still have some outliers. The you describe a couple soldiers who come from a pacifist community that is sworn That's not right. to take up arms under any conditions, and these guys have enlisted. What were were they outliers, or were there more than a few of these in the regiment? So there were about 20 soldiers from a pacifist um, communitarian society in Tuscarawas County, Ohio. Uh, again, this is northeastern Ohio. It's called Zor, uh, and this was a German separatist community founded in 1817, um, religious pacifist uh, communitarian society, and 
these 20 guys, um, owing in, in, in some part to their ideas about emancipation, owing to their convictions about slavery, decide to go off and enlist uh, when that uh, call for troops is made in July of 1862. And it, it's just a remarkable story that uh, these men go off and, and and these 20 guys in particular are facing, right, not only the nativism within the army and within northern society more broadly, but uh, they're literally facing uh, fathers and mothers and, and, and brothers and family members back home, um, some of whom have, have sworn to, to be conscientious objectors, some of whom are, are viscerally opposed, uh, morally opposed to the war, and they have to uh, kind of weather this conflict and then wonder what the return home will be like, uh, right? What, what will it be like to um, return home to a, a pacifist society? And it's one of the most fascinating stories of, of this unit. It, it really was. The, uh, now, the unit goes off. They, they go east. They join the Army of the Potomac, 18, late 1862. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1863, they're there for the Mud March uh, at Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. And you talk uh, briefly about their, their seasoning experience. And normally, uh, you know, when we read about soldiers being seasoned, it refers to becoming immune to disease uh, or dying mm-hmm. of disease, one, one or the other. Uh, but the regiment mm-hmm. becomes seasoned. Uh, it, its members are either stronger or they're gone. But you also talk about it from a psychological standpoint. Yes, I, I think um, Civil War regiments, I think this regiment in particular undergoes a, a sort of political seasoning, right, where they come to understand just what a massive thing this war is. They come to understand um, the capaciousness of the war and their place in it. For the soldiers of the 107th Ohio, that, that first starts to happen when they um, pull up in Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1862, and they see the starkly militarized landscape. Um, and they, they begin to realize, um, you know, that this is a real war, right? Um, this is not the kind of farcical countermarches that they were making outside of um, Cincinnati um, in September of 1862, that uh, this is war in earnest. And then, and, and this is, I think, one of the, the big arguments in the, in the book, and it draws on the scholarship of, of John Hennessy and others, they are moored in camp, winter encampment of 1862 and 1863 on the north bank of the Rappahannock River. The bone-chilling winter, um, you know, the, the environmental conditions, the, the sanitary conditions are, are absolutely horrible. And that camp, that encampment, coincides with the flowering of the peace movement back home, and in particular in their region, their part of Ohio. Uh, the day that they trudge into this kind of wretched campsite of a place called Brook Station, Clement Verlanding in the Ohio congressman delivers this anti-war, anti-abolition, anti-Lincoln tirade on the floor of the House of Representatives. And this uh, coincidence of their shivering and their suffering and their sacrificing in these winter huts uh, with this peace movement back home prompts them to, to think about, to measure the distance between the, the home front and the battlefield, and to think about and to think through questions of cowardice and loyalty and political allegiance and, and what does it mean to uh, be uh, loyal, what does it mean to be cowardly. Um, and I think that that's really important because so, so often when we, we write these regimental histories, that it's just you know, one battle after another. 
and we forget about these, these haunting gaps right between the battles uh, where a, a lot of things happen for these men. Right? So many of their ideas and their attitudes about the war are, are shaped in those interstices between battles. And for the 107th Ohio, it's this, this winter encampment, which some scholars have, I think, rightly referred to as the, the Valley Forge of the Army of the Potomac. Um, they are able to, um, to, to really, in a sort of ironic sense, like the, the anti-war um, hissing back home gives them an ironic uh, sort of sense of unity, right? Uh, it, it begins to paper over some of those differences that we were just speaking about a moment ago, welds them together and gives them the confidence that they have to win this war. Um, and, and some of them, right, will, will contend that they have more respect for the rebels across the, the Rappahannock than they do for uh, the anti-war uh, factions back home, because at least the rebels have the courage they, they believe to stand up and fight uh, for what they, they believe in. And so this becomes a, a really galvanizing experience for them. Of course, Stonewall Jackson will have a little something to do with um, undoing uh, that, that internal strength and that sense of unity. It's a very, very powerful thing. Well, Jackson certainly does. The the two most searing experiences for the the regiment are are its combat experiences at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. Uh, And I want to talk about those. Chancellorsville in particular, everyone listening to this program is familiar with the 11th Corps, the German soldiers being on the flank at Chancellorsville and surprised by Jackson's flank march. Uh, The your description of it is, first I want to say, illuminated by really excellent maps. Uh, it just, it, it's so nice when, when the maps fit with what the author is saying and show you where the regiment is compared to the features you're talking about. Uh, but one mm-hmm. can see clearly that, that this regiment had no chance and a much larger force shows up right on yeah. their flank. What were they going to do? But your description of the battle it suggests that they they did as well as any troops could likely do. Mm-hmm. I think that's right, um, and and certainly this would become a, a crusade. I mean, really, Chancellorsville for this unit was was two battles: the battle that they fought on the Orange Turnpike on May second, and then the battle um, in May and June of eighteen sixty three to to win public opinion and to push back against these caricatures that were deployed in the press that would pillory the 11th Corps, right? And they would make this argument, right? If we'd remained but five minutes longer, we should have all been killed and, and uh, taken prisoner. And this gets to a, a peculiarity of the unit, I think, Jerry, where they, they take pride in their pain and suffering. I mean, we, uh, Leslie Gordon, I deeply admire her, her scholarship, her book on the 16th Connecticut. She Writes that Civil War soldiers, you know, were were working to kind of efface and to scrub the narrative of um, reverses. Um, you know, the 16th Connecticut has their bad day at Antietam, and they work to efface that experience. How did some of Ohio does something rather different? Right, they take pride in that suffering, and they almost wield the, the casualty rolls and the casualty register as evidence. Right, that. They were here. They were willing to do their duty, and of course, that's all instantly bound up with their ethnic identity. Um, unlike the 16th Connecticut, largely native-born units, right, they they have to prove uh, that they were there, that they were willing to stand and and fight. And I think it's pretty interesting that they they make these these claims, right? That we remained, we stood in place, um, and the, the casualties attest 
not to our cowardice, but to our determination, to our bravery. So what do you make of the fact that there are, you point out, there are ignorant people who weren't there who say, oh, the Germans broke and ran. But there are native-born Americans in other regiments that were there, even native-born Americans in their own regiment, who signed a petition saying, yeah, the Germans ran. They had to know that was mm-hmm. not true. What, is, that, is that just nativism gone amok? It certainly is. The 17th Connecticut, um, which was brigaded with the 107th and uh, first in Nathaniel McLean's brigade and, and later on in, in Ames's brigade at, at Gettysburg, 17th Connecticut just has this, um, this, this really hostile, tense relationship with the 107th. And a lot of that is owing to uh, the nativism um, uh, within the army and um, just the sense that these men are, are outsiders, that they're not to be respected, and they'll subscribe to uh, so many of these, these stereotypes. And, and again, that's, that's particularly, particularly galling for this unit that's seeking um, uh, acceptance and seeking to demonstrate um, you know, that they can, they can prove their worthiness as soldiers. Well, they will get their chance again a, a month later, two months later, actually, at, at Gettysburg. And again, mm-hmm. most people listening to the, the show can picture in their minds the map of the first day at Gettysburg with the 11th Corps and the Union right flank. And there is going to be the 107th in the middle of that. Th- this episode is one that you tell episodically throughout the book. It's almost, it reminded me of Catch-22, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, mm-hmm. periodic repetition of this story that echoing how it must have echoed through these men's lives their whole life Uh, Mm -hmm. we're going to build suspense take a short break and come back and talk about july 1st 1863 with our guest brian matthew jordan author of a thousand may fall life death and survival in the union army it's about the 107th ohio regiment i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. 
These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Brian Matthew Jordan, author of A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. It is a regimental history of the 107th Ohio, which found itself on the exposed end of the Union right flank on the first day at Gettysburg, off on the northern side of the battlefield on, on Blocker's Knoll, that often called Barlow's Knoll now after the Union Division commander who held there. Uh, their experience there, Brian, was was not much better than the one at, at Chancellorsville, was it? That's right. And in fact, many of these men will note the eerie coincidence of um, between the Chancellorsville and Gettysburg experiences. Here they are once again deployed to the extreme right flank of the Union line in a hopeless position. Um, bereft of, of good leadership at the regimental, um, especially at the divisional uh, level under a new army commander. Um, this was not lost on these men that this was Chancellorsville all over again. So they they get driven off the knoll. They suffer, again, very high casualties. Their regimental commander this time does not cover himself with glory. Uh, he ends up getting court-martialed for his conduct there. Was he? Uh, did he merit that? He certainly did. Uh, Saracen Meyer is the colonel of the 107th Ohio. Uh, he is, in fact, the only federal colonel court-martialed for cowardice uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg. He'd been captured in the fight at Chancellorsville on the Orange Turnpike, uh, sent off to an unhappy six-week sojourn in Libby Prison uh, down in Richmond. And that experience was just um, one that I think he really never got over. He watched in that moment. Um, not only does he experience the humiliation of his capture, but he watches as his son, who is the captain of Company C, um, watches as his son is surrounded, and he believes his son is killed at Chancellorsville. He goes off to Libby Prison believing that he's watched his son's last moments. Um, happily, that wasn't the case. Um, he was um, pretty seriously injured, but not, um, not killed at the Battle of Chancellorsville. Seraphim Myers exchanged, he returns to the unit, and he gets up to uh, Blocker's Knoll. He parks the unit at the tip of the salient, this forlorn salient, um, right at the, the face of Rock Creek. Um, they fight for about an hour and a half against the uh, Howland Georgians that splice across the creek and push them back into the borough, uh, across those fields uh, at the almshouse, um, back into town, back up to the foot of the East Cemetery Hill, um, but Seraphim Meyer, um, as these men are, are going into action, he, I think, uh, sees Chancellorsville all over again, and he will um, abandon the, the unit in this hour of peril. 
uh, only to, to turn up later that evening. Albert Ames will um, um, place him under um, arrest on, on the spot, and he sent off to a, uh, a regimental court-martial um, in August of 1863. Um, the judge advocate general in that case finds that he was guilty, but he's spared right, being cashiered and spared the guilty verdict on the technicality and the fact that they didn't swear the, um, the regimental court-martial panel. Um, they didn't take their oath in, in the presence of the judge advocate general, and so he's spared um, um, being relieved of command on the technicality, which, which really for him and for the unit uh, was probably a worse fate right, because they would live with this uh, stigma for uh, really the rest of their service. Ultimately, Saracen Meyer will be drummed out of, of, of the service in, in the early months of 1864 uh, when they begin conducting kind of an officer, um, officer training exams, and it's, it's revealed that, that Saracen Meyer can't um, deliver orders or, or um, you know, execute um, anything from the drill manual. And so he um, takes that opportunity to resign and uh, make his way back home to Ohio and eventually up to California. Um, but uh, certainly his drama, I think, um, is a window into all of the, the baggage, uh, emotional, psychological, and otherwise, that these men bring to a, a battlefield. Um, you know, it's easy to look uh, at one of those colorful battlefield maps that we all love to um, take into the field with us and, to, to, you know, again, kind of, Monday morning quarterback, um, these units in, in their positions. Um, and it's easy to forget, right, that they, they bring, uh, so much baggage to the, the battlefield with them that it can't be conveyed in that medium of a map. And I think Meyer's a good example of that. Now, after Meyer leaves the, uh, the, the regiment on, at the foot of East Cemetery Hill on, on July 2nd, they participate in the battle again. They get bombarded from Benner's Hill. But then, when mm-hmm. when Hayes Louisiana Brigade attacks them, they they defend. And I was looking at the map, and I'm trying to picture. It looks like they're right in the parking lot of the 1863 hotel, it is or, or maybe the tavern. That, that that ugly green water tank that's planted up right. on Cemetery Hill, right behind the old Holiday Inn. That's literally the the flank markers for the 107th. Are right up. Um, kind of along the cyclone fence that is around that ugly green water tank. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that that's the old Holiday Inn. They, they changed the name to 1863. I don't know if they've changed it again. But, yeah, as I was looking at the map, I said, I've, I've parked my car on this battlefield, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, around this piece of the battlefield. Right. And it's, so it's not one that the, the, the tourists normally stop and look at, but they had their moment of battlefield success there. They, they did succeed in driving the Louisiana Brigade back and, and holding their ground. Uh, one of the interesting things you point out in the aftermath of that battle is how long it took the news to get back home and how what a just long and painful disjointed period of time would go by as people back home found out who lived and who didn't. That's right. Um, and even even for the men um, themselves, right, figuring out uh, what had happened. One of the more compelling characters, I think, from the 107th is the regimental postmaster, uh, Alfred Ryder, uh, who gets uh, dispatched to hospital detail out at the George and Elizabeth Spangler farm. And he 
he actually he'll of course bond with John Batchelder um, later on. And a lot of what we know about um, that experience out of the Spangler firm comes from the what becomes the Batchelder papers. But Ryder uh, will actually kind of track back and forth between Spangler Farm and the southern tip of the battlefield um, back to the unit up on uh, East Cemetery Hill, and he writes that he wore out his brilliance, um, tracking back and forth between the hospital and the unit to urgently convey the news of who was living and who was dying. Uh, he was recording this in one of Spangler's old um, farm registers, and you really get the sense that you know these, these men, too, in, in real time, are attempting to piece together what has happened to them and, and throughout the war, right, to, to piece together how their unit was, was representative of uh, how it was contributing to uh, the, the success of the Union Army or the failure of, of, of the Union Armies. Um, and, and so that really comes through in those anguished days immediately after, after Gettysburg. And again, that, that drip, drip continues all throughout the, the autumn. Once they are, are down and um, they're whisked to the margins of the war into the Department of the South and they're redeployed onto Folly Island in South Carolina, um, men are, are still emerging from the Gettysburg hospitals and every time I, one of those men rejoins the unit, it's like reliving the Battle of Gettysburg all over again. And so I think that, too, is a, an underappreciated phenomenon, the way that the, the long shadow of, of these battles within the regimental community. But you were, when I'm reading the book and you describe one of the, the officers coming back to the unit, uh, and I did a double take and said, wait, I thought he lost his arm. And I go back. Yeah, his arm yeah. was amputated, but he comes back to the unit yeah. to continue serving. That that yeah, is like like Major the Monty Python yeah. night. Yep. Um, the yeah. um, yep. it, 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 well, you, as you say, they they get shipped away. The Eleventh Corps gets sent off to with Hooker and Twelfth Corps and Eleventh Corps go west to to fight at Chickamauga and Lookout mm-hmm. Mountain. But not these guys. The eight regiments of the Corps are sent south to the Charleston mm-hmm. area, eventually to Florida, and you describe their adventures back and forth there. Uh, in just the last few minutes that we have, you describe uh, a raid that they undertake into South Carolina, which lasts uh, even beyond Appomattox, goes right to the end of the war and then some. Uh, that's right. That's something that nobody remembers. I mean, that, that must have been something for the men to go home and say, I fought at Dingle's Mill, uh, after Lee had surrendered or simultaneous to it. Uh, no one's heard of that. that. That's just it. And, you know, these, these men believed, and this comes through in their pension files and in their kind of post-war um, reunion speeches, they believed that they had a monopoly on misery and a monopoly on misfortune, that they, they believed that they were kind of a uniquely unlucky unit. And this perhaps no better example of that. Probably their single best moment on the battlefield comes Sunday, April the 9th, 1865, at a place called Dingle's Mill along Turkey Creek, um, just outside of Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, in the middle of this expedition, um, long overlooked, um, both then and since, called Potter's Raid. And uh, one of their members, uh, Henry Thinkenbitter, will earn the Medal of Honor uh, for his actions there at uh, Dingle's Mill, where they, they linked hands with the, the famous 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Um, it, it's their moment of glory. And, of course, it is simultaneous with and completely eclipsed by 
the events up at, at Appomattox Courthouse. It's it's just at their luck, but certainly their contributions to um, Potter's Raid, this uh, which extends into the the end of April, um, 1865. Uh, if you look at the number of, of uh, enslaved persons that they uh, helped to to liberate, and the, uh, the amount of of rolling stock and, and supplies that they were able to confiscate, uh, which was the, the initial object of, of this raid, uh, Sherman's fixation on um, securing all this rolling stock that had been sent into the interior of the state as he started driving north into to your home state. Um, that um, you know, it's really their moment in the sun, and, and nobody remembers it. And that's that's something that just kind of confirmed this intuition that they were they were uniquely unfortunate. Well, in in your final chapter in the epilogue, you talk about just that issue of remembering the war, and this very much blends with your earlier work on Union veterans. That, uh, as you point out, they this regiment, like others, rejects the reconciliationist view that hey, we're all we're all white men together here. Let's shake hands. Uh, they they're not buying that. They um, they want their war to be remembered, and. Let me ask this because listeners may benefit from it in the last minute. You you briefly talk about what's left physically, um, where their markers are around mm-hmm. the country. Can what can we still see of the 107th? So there are um, places. Uh, Dingles Mill, for for instance, there is a small park there with uh, a few markers, um, and there's. Um, uh, many of the sites actually related to Potter's Raid in South Carolina. There's a tourist brochure that you can um, obtain um, in Sumter that will take you around uh, these various areas, about Boynkin's Mill, uh, Dingle's Mill, uh, some of these other um, locations. Of course, at Gettysburg, uh, they're only regimental monuments. They uh, choose to erect that um, mm-hmm. on Ohio Day in 1887 up at Blocker's Knoll. Um, and the flank markers that we mentioned up on East Cemetery Hill. Um, nothing really to um, to see at uh, Chancellorsville, at the, the Tally Farm where they were deployed, is, is now kind of under um, uh, thick vegetation out there on, on what is today Virginia Route 3. Um, but certainly in some of the, the lesser-known sites, and I think that's what was, was really most exciting about this project, to follow a unit through the uh, to see a unit that participates in two of the, the most recognized and the bloodiest battles, but also a unit that um, is equally shaped and informed uh, by um, events in Florida and South Carolina. You can go to, to Fort Milton, which is a, uh, it's a camp at Milton, which is a, a wonderfully preserved park with lots of interpretive wayside markers, um, some of the, the Civil War sites around Jacksonville and Folly Island. So, um, there's a lot left, but there, there are traces, which I think is, is appropriate, not, uh, not unlike the traces that they left in the archives and the traces, frankly, that they left in, in public memory. Well, they, they've left a much bigger trace now that you have written this book, uh, A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. It is the story of the 107th Ohio Regiment. Uh, and listeners, if you have the slightest interest in any of these topics, I highly recommend this book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I think the regimental history is a great window into uh, the, the experience of Civil War soldiers and the communities that spawn them as well. And and this book does an outstanding job of it. It, it, it certainly uh, 
carries on the tradition you mentioned Leslie Gordon, Susanna Earle, and others. Uh, this is right there with them. Uh, so, listeners, this is one you definitely want to read. A Thousand May Fall. Uh, Brian Matthew Jordan is the author. Brian, thanks so much for coming back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry, again, always a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.